talk about this wicked generation and our call to be the light. If you could please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, where we are picking up in verse 29. Before we get going, we sang a couple of songs today about the love of Jesus, about how sweet the gospel is, and we want to remember that in this first part of the message, because the first part of the message doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of love in it. But there is. There is love in truth. When we speak truth, we speak love. Sometimes the most unloving thing you can do is to soften the truth to the point where it has no meaning anymore. And Jesus didn't do that. And neither are we. We're not going to do that today. So strap yourselves in for a little bit and we get to talk about this wicked generation. And actually, even before I get there, the first sentence that we're going to look at here talks about crowds gathering, that Jesus was speaking and crowds were increasing. Now, in those crowds, there were many different types of people. There were people that came because they heard about Jesus and they wanted to hear what he had to say. There were doubters and naysayers in the crowd. There were folks from the religious institutions that were actively seeking to destroy Jesus and find things that he was saying to use against him. All sorts of people in the crowd. There were those that were seeking. There were those that were convinced that Jesus was wrong and were seeking to harm him. And there were those that were kind of on the fence, trying to decide, maybe this was the first time they had heard, they were trying to decide who this Jesus was. And today... We have to remember that we'll have all of those groups listening to our message as we go out and proclaim. We can't assume that everybody agrees with us. We have a group here sitting in this room that maybe for the most part you guys will agree with what I have to say, but we're also recording this and this is going to go out on a podcast as all of them do and anybody could listen. Somebody who thinks that Christianity is full of a bunch of hateful, bigoted people that want to just cast judgment on those that disagree with them. Maybe those people will be listening today. We need to be sure that as we are proclaiming our message, not just me, but you, when you go out into the world, when you are being that light, when you are shining the brightness of the truth of God, that we recognize that we're not always going to be met with open arms, and there are some that are going to meet us with hostility. So when Jesus opens up, he talks about The crowds were increasing, and he began to say, as these crowds were coming, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. So we're going to look today at these points. We're going to look first at what does it mean to be a wicked generation today. Jesus tells them at their time why they are a wicked generation, but we're going to explore what I think, and we'll see if you agree, what it means to be a wicked generation today. We're also going to look at A generation that is so evil that even past pagan generations will cast judgment. We'll get to see Jesus talk about those who were seeking the will of God from afar that will stand up at the judgment day and pass judgment on the generation he's talking talking to at the time. We'll also see him reference those who repented, a pagan nation who repented and turned to God at the preaching of Jonah, that they will stand up at the day of judgment. And will they stand up in the day of judgment against us? as well. And then after all of that, we get to get to the good part, to be the light, that the call is not one to condemn and to point fingers, but to revive, to preach the truth, 
to spread the light and the love of Jesus Christ to the world. And that is our call as believers, to get out there into the world and do that. So these are the points that we're going to be looking at today. And we get to start with the fun one. So let's get to the verse. Verse 29, Luke eleven twenty nine. As the crowds were increasing, the crowds are increasing and they're coming to him. And remember what he had just done. Let's not forget where we came from. Last week, we talked about a woman who after hearing Jesus preach about you're either for me or you're against me. There is no middle ground. Either you gather with me or you scatter. There is no middle ground. A woman calls out and says, blessed is your mom. And he said, no, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. So he's preaching truth. He's preaching hard truth. And from that, the crowds are increasing. And he continues to not pull any punches. He starts by saying, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. Now, he calls out what their wickedness was. This was a nation that thought they knew God, that was seeking God, and as Jesus came, even as he's performing all of these signs, they're, they're asking for more signs. Well, recall a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that, that there were those that followed Jesus, those that believed. There were those that didn't believe, that were accusing him of casting out demons by demons, by Beazable. And then there were those in the middle ground who said, well, you know, maybe we'll believe, just give us one more sign. And he said, no, 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 there is no middle ground. Either you're for me or you're against me. Either you gather with me or you scatter. So he's continuing with this. Somebody asked yesterday as we were discussing some of these points, has there ever been a generation that is not wicked? Jesus is pointing to them saying, this is a wicked generation, which begs the question, well, which one isn't? And I think the truth is, is that all generations have their own brand of wickedness, including our own, which is one of the awesome things about Scripture is it speaks to all people at all time, that God's truth is universal, not just then when it was spoken, but now, today. So what is our wickedness? I started to think about it a, a few weeks ago, and it occurred to me going through Scripture that there are three things that jump out at me. There are more, I'm sure, but there are three things that jump out at me as being signs of a nation, of a people group, under condemnation by God. Things that make God mad at a nation. And we see some examples of those in Scripture. In Scripture. The first is child sacrifice. We can look at Canaan, the land of Canaan. One of the main reasons that God sent the Israelites in and told them to wipe out the people of Canaan, drive them out, wipe them out, kill them all, was because the sin of the Canaanites had become so deep, so incredibly perverse, that this was a just judgment from God. In fact, God even waited and kept his people in captivity in Egypt for 400 years, waiting for the fullness of the Canaanite sin to become a reality. He, we can read that in Genesis, that he sent them off and said, you're not going to possess the land at this time because the sin of the Canaanites has not reached its fullness. What was one of the major main sins of the Canaanites? What was one of the things that they were doing? They were sacrificing their children. We all can also see, as referenced in the tale of Sodom and Gomorrah, that sexual immorality is one of those things that Scripture calls out over and over and over again as something that is entirely offensive to God. 
and a nation that embraces and celebrates sexual immorality is one that can fall under God's judgment. And we see that in Sodom and Gomorrah, and we'll explore that a little bit more. Another one that we'll explore, the third piece, is God has kind of a special place in his heart for the nation of Israel, for the Jews. He called them out. From Abraham on, he said, nations will be blessed through you. He chose the Jews to be his messengers, to be his children. And over and over in Scripture, we see that there is great hazard in standing against the nation of Israel. So are we today, as the United States of America, guilty of that in any way? And we'll explore that briefly as well. Well, the Canaanites would actually sacrifice their children on altars of fire to their gods. Well, certainly we don't do that, right? No. But we do sacrifice our children on the altar of our own convenience in abortion. There may be some that hear this that say, well, abortion, that's, that's not the same thing. A fetus is not a person. They haven't been born yet. I used to believe that. Back before I knew God, I believed that. I actually changed my mind on that, however, even before I came to know God. I remember the day that it occurred to me that abortion was murder. And it was the day I saw the 4D ultrasound of our son. Well within the realm of the time frame where it was legal to abort him. And what I saw in that picture was my child. And that day I changed my mind. And it was years later that I actually came to know Christ. But what does scripture have to say? We don't care necessarily about what did Larry see in an ultrasound. What does scripture have to say about it? After coming to Christ, I have a very vivid memory as well. I was driving through Wasilla, and a car pulled in front of me, and it had a bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker was a quote from Jeremiah 1.5. It said this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you, having appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This hit me so hard when I was driving that I burst out in tears, started crying as I thought of all of the children that have been aborted in this nation. I had to pull over and stop. Now let me pause here because I mentioned that those crowds that are listening, some here today, some listening to this message online, will likely have had an abortion. And that makes this message very, very personal and very, very difficult, as we realize that though our society has wrapped abortion in these very acceptable terms, we call it a procedure. We talk about women's rights, reproductive rights. We don't want the government interfering in a woman's right to choose what to do with her body. This is where we need to pause and remember that as we discuss these difficult issues, for all things, there is forgiveness with repentance that Christ's sacrifice covers all things, that Moses was a murderer, that Paul was a murderer of Christians, and God used them, and he can use anybody who has committed any sin, and all of us sin. All of us commit heinous acts of aggression against God. So if, this is, if I am talking about something that you have been involved in, know that there is forgiveness in Christ. 
and I am not pointing fingers at you. What I am doing is pointing out how our society has come to embrace what God calls evil. When we talk about women's productive rights and women say don't, I don't want people telling me what to do with my body, we're actually not talking about the woman's body. We're talking about the baby's body who happens to reside for a short time in the woman. God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. In Deuteronomy, he talks specifically about Canaanites and why God expelled them. He says, you shall not behave thus like the Canaanites towards the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn, even sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. An abominable act. In 1973, a landmark decision, Roe versus Wade, everybody knows this, the United States made it the law of the land that it is now legal to kill our children, to sacrifice our children on the altar of ourselves, on the altar of our own convenience, on the altar of our own pride. And since that time, 57.9 million abortions have happened in the United States. That's an average of 1.4 million babies killed every year in the United States. Do you think that the United States might be in danger of coming under the condemnation of God given what we see in Scripture? Is this a wicked generation according to what we see in Scripture? Again, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Let's move on to another happy topic, sexual immorality. Well, if we're going to talk about sexual immorality, we've, get, we've gotten very confused on what sexual immorality is in this country. Let's talk about what it is not. Sexual physical intimacy is a good gift of God that was given to be enjoyed between one man and one woman within the confines of covenant marriage before God for life. Period. All sexual activity or even sexual desire, according to Jesus, outside of those confines is sexual immorality and sin. Now, this is something that we have let go of. We like to point our fingers at homosexuality, and I I will talk about homosexuality here shortly. But it's not just homosexuality. We have come to accept all forms of sexual immorality in this country over the past several generations. Past two, mostly. Sex outside of marriage is normal. How many churches do we have where people come in, they're not married, they're living together, and we just ignore that? Well, that's just normal. Divorce rate within Christian community is exactly the same as it is outside the Christian community. Adultery. There's no difference between the rate of adultery inside the church as there is outside the church. Our country has come to accept divorce as normal. That's the norm. It's tolerated. But we need to recognize, too, that there's a difference between tolerance and celebration. You see, in this country, we've been tolerating sexual immorality for a long time. In our churches, we've been tolerating it for a long time. But we don't really celebrate those things that I just talked about. We don't celebrate divorce. We don't say, woohoo, you got divorced, for the most part. We don't celebrate the idea of couples engaged in intimacy outside of marriage, if, if there's two single people. We don't celebrate that, but we, we tolerate it. But there is something that our society has come to celebrate. We have come to celebrate homosexuality. 
we have come to celebrate the acceptance of homosexuality. Now, maybe I'm just being an, an, an old-fashioned a backwards geezer thinking there's something wrong with homosexuality because society certainly will tell you that there's not, that it's normal, that God created them that way. And while there are answers to all those questions, I'm not going to take up the time to discuss that in detail, but let's look at what Scripture briefly says about the condemnation of God that comes as a result of sexual immorality. The prime example of that is... Sodom and Gomorrah. What was Sodom's sin? In Ezekiel, he kind of lays it out. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, that she and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Well, let's stop there for a second. This doesn't reference sexual sin yet. But does that sound familiar? Arrogant, abundant food, careless ease, not helping the poor and needy? I'll leave that to you. Thus, because of this, They were haughty and committed abominations before me. Now that word for abominations is the same word that's used in the next verse that we'll look at. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. So let's get a little bit more specific. In Leviticus, that word for abomination said, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination to God. And then in Jude, Jude refers to this as well and says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve it as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Jude explicitly says that Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of what happens to a nation when they embrace, when they celebrate sexual immorality, including the abomination of homosexuality. Many of you know people who have a homosexual lifestyle. Many of you know people who are engaged in that lifestyle. And we are called hateful and bigoted for calling out that lifestyle as something that is offensive to God. And we do need to be careful as a church about how we approach this. It's very easy to point fingers and become hostile at people who sin differently than you do. It's very easy to point over there and say, you know, you dirty, rotten sinner, as a means to ignore the things that I'm doing, the things that I fail at. But when we approach the people that we love with truth, we're not being hateful. Is it loving to go to a heroin addict and encourage them to continue using heroin because, well, they were born with an addictive nature? That serves their purpose. That makes them feel good. That would not be loving. In fact, you would be encouraging their destruction. Is it loving to encourage somebody in a lifestyle that we know Scripture clearly claims goes against the design, the nature, and the command of God so that they can be happy in this life, though I would challenge that? No, that's unloving. 1973, the United States made abortion the law of the land. In 2015, next month, they may do the same thing with the redefinition of marriage. They, the United States Supreme Court heard arguments in April and are expected to come out with a decision in June on redefining marriage across the entire nation. And we need to be praying that God would move in their decision-making process and that our country can 
move back to God in this respect. But what I need to point out here is that we are living in a nation that is very close to celebrating, embracing, and making it the law of the land to redefine God's definition of marriage and to not just accept what God calls sin, but to promote and embrace and celebrate it. To celebrate the destruction of people. I don't have, we, I can do a sermon on this later, or we'll talk on it later if we want, but one of the things that we see in the homosexual community is a dramatic jump in suicidal rates, dramatic increase over heterosexual populations in depression, in drug use, in obviously sexually transmitted diseases, we see that as well. It's a damaging lifestyle because they are working outside of their design. Now, the one objection that I'll throw out here real quick is that I hear it a lot, well, God made them that way. They were born with it. They didn't choose to be homosexual. Well, God made me a man with a desire for women, and that unfortunately means that my desire has not is not limited to one woman, as all men are. Our desire is, is out there, and we need to exercise self-control. I can say, look, God created me to fantasize about women, there, and therefore it shouldn't be a sin, except that Scripture calls out that it absolutely is. All of us have battles that we need to fight. All of us are susceptible to certain sin, and we need to fight against it. What about the heterosexual man or the heterosexual woman that is single. They have the same desires, the same natural desires as the married couple, yet they are called by Scripture to remain celibate until such time as they are married. Should we say, but they were born with that desire, therefore they should be able to indulge it at their whim? No. And it's no different from the heterosexual or from the homosexual person. That doesn't mean that we don't have sympathy for what they are going through. That doesn't mean that we don't have sympathy, that we don't have empathy for their struggle and their plight. But we cannot use that as an excuse to lead them down the path to sin. Thirdly, the contempt of Israel. When God called Abraham out, he made him a promise. Find this promise in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. That second part is a reference to Jesus Christ, and all the families on the earth will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, through Jesus Christ. But there's also a reference to Israel here, that those who bless the nation of Israel will be blessed. Those who curse, who treat the nation of Israel with contempt, will be cursed. There are many, many verses that uh, go to this. This one just seemed to be one of them that kind of encapsulated it. So are we in danger of this? The United States has been the biggest friend to Israel since Israel's reconstitution in 1948. So certainly, this is not a problem for us, right? Our relationship with Israel has recently, over the past several years, gone through a bit of a strain. In March 2015, this was as a result of the election of President Netanyahu, President Barack Obama warned that we may need to reassess our relationship between Israel and the United States. We have been backing off of that support of that relationship. Now, we, are, we haven't jumped the other side yet as a nation, but we're in danger of doing it. So to sum up, a wicked generation, I think, can be defined as one that participates in child sacrifice, which we do. Sexual immorality that is rampant and celebrated, which we do. Contempt of Israel, which we are flirting with. A little history lesson, kind of go back. American history, I'm a fan of American history. George Washington, 
first president of the United States, what was the very first official act that George Washington did? Official act, the very first thing he did, even called it the first official act. He did it in his inauguration speech. He dedicated this country to God and gave a prophetic warning should we ever leave. Let's read what he said. This is what George Washington said in his first inaugural address as he is becoming the very first president of the United States. He said it would be peculiarly, peculiarly I can't say that word, improper to omit this first official act. My fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States. We ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. In his inaugural address, George Washington said, if you walk away from Scripture, if you walk away from the truth of God, if you walk away from the truths of right and wrong that heaven itself hath ordained, then you cannot expect the blessings from heaven to continue. And we, in our generation, are walking very quickly away from the truths of God. Number two, generation... So evil, pagans will judge. Those who sought God's wisdom and those who repented. Jesus continues and says in verse 31, The queen of the south, you can find that in 1 Kings chapter 10, will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Here you have the queen of a pagan nation who heard about the wisdom of God, the wisdom of Solomon. God gave Solomon his wisdom so that he was the most, the wisest man ever to live. And she heard about this and sought that wisdom. She actually came to test him, asked him really hard questions, and God gave him all the answers. Here was a pagan nation that actively sought the wisdom of God. And Jesus says, because of that, because they actively sought the wisdom of God, whether they liked it or not, whether they liked the answers or not, that nation will stand up in judgment against the Israelites that Jesus is talking to. And I would say that they will stand up in judgment against us if we do not seek the wisdom of God as well. He goes on to say, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation of the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Remember Jonah? Remember the whale, right? God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, preach to them, and Jonah says, no way, man, I'm not going to go there. Those people are awful. And the Ninevites really were awful. They had a habit of cutting the heads off their enemies, putting them on poles, and lining them outside the city as a way to intimidate their opponents, the Jews. Jonah not only wanted them destroyed, but he also was probably afraid for his life. So Jonah tried to run. That didn't work out well for him. God, you know, had him swallowed by a fish, chased him down. And ultimately, Jonah went and preached in Nineveh. And what did Jonah say in Nineveh? Did he give some eloquent speech? Did he go through and say, no, if you would just please come and understand the love of God? No. 
He said, 40 days hence, you will be destroyed. In 40 days, you're toast. And truth be, truth be known, he was rooting for it. He, was, he didn't want them to repent. But an amazing thing happened. At the preaching of Jonah, all of the city, from the smallest to the king, repented and turned to God because God had prepared their hearts for the preaching of Jonah. A pagan nation who did not know God, who was an active enemy to God, repented and turned to God. Now this should give us a lot of hope. So before we get to the hope, we've got the wicked generation. We are a wicked generation. Sacrifice the children, sexual morality, contempt of Israel. We see that there are generations and societies out there that were pagan, that didn't know God, that because they sought God and because they responded to the preaching of the word of God, turned to God. And lastly, we get to the, the good part. What are we supposed to do with all this? Oh no, our country is going down the wrong path. What do we do about it? Well, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you have given your life to him, you are called to be the light, to shine his love to that dark world. And we do that not by shrinking from truth, but by proclaiming truth. We do that by living our lives, not just coming to church and hearing a sermon, but going out there and following the will of God and actively working out his purposes in your life, to be salt, to be light. We are called to revive the church. We want a revival in our church. We want an awakening in our church. We want our church, not just this church, all the churches out there, to be sparked with such a flame that we shine so brightly that the outside world cannot help but to say, I got to have some of that. We have to stand up and stand for the truth for once. Stop being cowed. Stop cowering in a corner because somebody might call you a bad name because you stand for the word of God. In verse 33, Jesus says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor puts it under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. If you know Jesus Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you have that light that has been lit. We don't hide it. We don't put it away in a cellar and hide it so nobody can see it. We put it up on a lampstand where everybody can see it. And then there's a warning. For the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, when it is focused on Scripture, when you are focused on the truth of the Word of God, then your body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Watch out that the light within you is not darkness. Watch out that you are not allowing the falsehoods, the deceit of this world to trickle in to your understanding of the Word of God. We see that in the abortion. It's just a procedure. It's just a little medical procedure. It's talking about women's rights, but God calls it something very, very different. Let's not allow the world's view to come in and change our message. If, therefore, your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined, as when a lamp illumines you with its rays. We need revival in this nation. We need to turn back to God because we are a wicked generation who has turned far away from God. Are we gonna, does that mean I'm calling you to go out and stand on street corners and oppose abortion? Well, maybe, if that's what God calls you to. 
to go and talk to everybody and know and make sure that they're not being sexually immoral. If that's what God calls you to, to write our nation and say, stand with Israel. If that's what God calls you to, but I'm calling you to be the light, to revive, read your Bible, pray to God. Remember we talked a little bit about the start of all revival is extraordinary prayer. What is extraordinary prayer? It's extraordinary prayer. Whatever is your ordinary prayer, do a little extra. Pray that God would revive his church, would awaken his church, would awaken you. If you're honest, I think when most of us leave today, you'll probably go about your business and you'll forget for the most part all about God as you walk through your day. Maybe you'll remember to pray to him a little bit before you fall asleep. But most of us get distracted by the beautiful weather, go out and we'll have a barbecue or we'll do something like that. Those aren't bad things. But ask that God would constantly remind you that he is there in every aspect of your being and that he is calling you to act on his behalf in every aspect of your life. This summer we are going to be hosting and leading hopefully a very large revival in the valley. We'll be working with various churches to come together and hear the word of God preached, to hear stories about how God has acted in our lives told. And what we're looking for is again that spark, that refocus on God, that refocus on Jesus Christ so that we can bring his beautiful and his perfect gospel to this world that needs it so badly. If we can revive the church, if we can start living as Christians, those things will start to take care of themselves as we begin to interact in the world in a godly way. Hopefully I didn't already say finally because I'm going to say it again. Finally, if you don't know, Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. I've said a lot about this. If you know Christ, then your job is to revive, be the light. If you don't know Christ, God, he's calling to you. And it doesn't matter whether you have engaged in any of these acts. He calls us to repent, to believe, to give our lives to him, and there will be a light that grows in you, a peace that grows in you that you cannot explain. Scripture calls it a peace that passes all understanding. And all Jesus requires of you is to accept what he has already done on your behalf. He's paid for every sin you have ever committed. Now with that comes some responsibility. He has purchased you. That means you belong to him now. And he has a plan for your life that is far greater than any plan you have for yourself. And unfortunately, or in my case fortunately, far different than anything you have planned for yourself. And it is a grand adventure. If you don't know Christ, come and see me. We have elders here that can, can talk to you and answer questions. Listening to this on a podcast, find a church, find a Bible-believing church, go and ask questions. Ultimately, all you need to do is pray to God, God, forgive me my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need you. I know that the blood of Jesus Christ covers my sins, and I give my life to you wholly. If you don't know Christ, I challenge you to pray that prayer right now and to mean it. In the meantime, as we prepare to sing the song that we end with every, every day or every week, just as I am, let us pray to God that he would take us just where we are and bring us to that next level. If you could please bow your heads with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, 
God, first I want to beg your forgiveness. This nation that you provided us, that you through your providential hand as recognized wholly by our forefathers and by our founding president, God, we have taken this nation and we have taken the freedoms that you have given us and we have used those freedoms and turned away from you. God, I ask for a mighty revival of your church in this country. I ask that you would forgive us of our transgressions, that you would pull us back away from the path, the evil path that we as a nation have gone down and focus us again on the good, gracious truth of your word. That you would focus us on the person of Jesus Christ, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the author of our salvation. God, pull us back as a nation so that we again can be that bright and shining city on a hill, shining your light to the world. Until that happens, God, use us each individually to shine our light into the world that you have given us, into the dark corners of our neighborhoods, of our workplaces, of school, wherever you happen to have us be. God, help us to shine our light there so that more people can truly come to know your Son, Jesus Christ, and the salvation that can come only through him. Father, as we sing today, just as I am, I ask that you not leave us as we are. Whether we know you intimately I ask that you give us the courage to take the next step. If we don't know you at all, if there's any here that do not know Jesus, God, I ask that you would touch their heart, you would open their heart, that they would come to feel their incredible need for you and the forgiveness that comes only through you and the peace that comes through that. Father, as we go throughout our week, as we plan for the events of the summer, I again ask for a dramatic revival, a movement of your spirit through the churches in this valley, in this state, and then in this country. Help us to join with other members of our faith community as we seek to know you better, to abandon our fleshly, selfish ways, and to focus wholly on you. God, we love you. We praise you, and it is the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.